pray together. Father, we love you. We love your word. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us your glory through your word. We acknowledge that unless the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts, we cannot understand and we cannot apply your word. And so we pray that this hour would not just be me talking and the people listening, but the Holy Spirit would be at work in changing our understanding that it might align with what is true and transforming our hearts through obedience. We pray against our pride and stubbornness of heart and our spiritual apathy and any other sins that would prevent us from receiving your word in humility. We ask that you would give each and every one of us a genuine excitement now to hear from you through this passage. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 1. We are, Lord willing, going to finish this morning what we started two weeks ago when we uh, began looking at verses 5 through 25, uh, the story of the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. Uh, And last time, you'll remember, we focused on the parents, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, This week, we are going to focus on the son, John. Just to get everybody up to speed, uh, there is a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, We're told that they were godly. Uh, They walked blamelessly before the Lord. Uh, But that they were an elderly, childless couple And back then, that would have been a great source of shame and reproach. Well, the events begin to unfold when one day Zechariah is chosen by Lot to go and burn the incense in the holy place. That would have been the highest honor that a priest like him could have. It would have been the highlight of his priestly career. It would be the only time in his life that he would be that close to the Holy of Holies. And so he goes to the holy place in the temple, he burns the incense, he begins to pray, and then boom, out of nowhere, appears this angel, the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him that he's going to have a son. Now remember that up to this point, God had been silent for over four centuries. The words of the prophet Malachi were the last words that God had spoken to his people. That was some 400 years ago. But now, as a new chapter in redemptive history uh, was beginning, well, it all begins with the angel appearing and speaking and making this promise to Zechariah. But Zechariah doesn't believe. How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years, which is a polite way of saying my wife is an old woman. Zechariah does not believe. Forget the fact that nothing is impossible for God. Forget the fact that God had done this exact same thing before in the Old Testament. Uh, He granted children to the barren woman. Uh, Zechariah, don't you remember Abraham and Sarah? Uh, Don't you remember Rachel? Don't you remember Hannah? Don't you remember Manoah and his wife? Forget the fact that an angel is literally standing right in front of him, telling him all of this. One of those things when you get those 
those messages with, with all those typos from like a fishy looking email. And it's like, congratulations, you won a $500 gift card. And it's like, okay, delete. Uh, this is not that, right? This is an angel standing before him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to you to bring you this good news. It's like, what other credentials can I possibly produce? And so, yes, Zechariah is a godly man. But the Bible reminds us once again that the best of men are a man at best. His unbelief is clearly manifest here. And because of his unbelief, God's going to make him mute until the, ba- until the day that the baby would be born. And not only as discipline for his unbelief, but also as a sure sign. Right? Like, now you're going to believe me. Like, I guarantee you that by day two of not being able to talk at all, Zechariah was fully convinced, he was fully confident that God was going to do exactly what God said he was going to do. We left off last time with Elizabeth rejoicing in her pregnancy. Verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and again, this is just review from last time, uh, you've got God looking upon his children with compassion. You've got God granting this lifelong prayer request and removing their shame. Uh, You've got God demonstrating once again his sovereignty over the womb. God giving Zechariah and Elizabeth their first child, even in uh, their seemingly impossibly old age. But while all that makes for a really heartwarming story, the reason that Luke starts off his book with Zechariah and Elizabeth really has nothing to do with any of that. Like he's not just telling a moving story about an old barren couple having a child. No, he's starting off his gospel with this story because of who that child is going to be. Because in that child, whom you have been praying for, Zechariah, Remember how omnipotent God can simultaneously answer multiple prayers on multiple levels. God's going to begin to answer the larger prayers of his people in waiting and fulfill his long-standing promise to bring a Messiah for the salvation of his people. Because that promised child, Zechariah and Elizabeth's child in old age, he's going to lead the way for the Savior of the world. That's why this pregnancy is so significant. That's why Dr. Luke opens his gospel by telling us about these folks. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning, on the promised son, on John the Baptist. So look along in your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17 of Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You will have 
joy, and gladness. Many of you know that Kevin and Sylvia just had a baby, baby Karis. Uh, They will tell you, uh, any first-time parent can tell you about the joy and the gladness that comes with having a baby. Just to be part of uh, God's creative activity, like right up front, to to see that baby develop from being a a tiny little speck to, to someone you can hold in your arms. Right, to hear the, the cries and the coos, uh, Zechariah, you're going to have joy and gladness. But really, I mean, you could say that about many parents and many babies throughout history. But we get the sense that uh, something more is meant here, because look again at verse 14. It's not just you who's going to have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. And that's not just referring to all the the ladies who showed up to the the baby shower, uh, though much later in the chapter we do see their neighbors and relatives rejoicing with them. I know there's something bigger going on here. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. That boy you're going to give birth to, Zechariah, Elizabeth, he's going to be a great man. We need to be careful here that, that we not impose worldly definitions and ideas here. Because the, the way our culture and perhaps secular history thinks of great, well, we tend to think of the rich and famous. We, t- we tend to think of the, the popular and the, the prestigious and the powerful and the influential. So you had Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. Uh, there's debates in every field about who's the goat, the greatest of all time. History tells us about Alexander the Great and Catherine the Great and Charlemagne, which apparently is French for Charles the Great. Now, compared to all those people, right, in terms of the worldly standards of popularity and prestige and power and legacy, well, John wasn't great at all. Came from an unremarkable family from the hill country of Judea. Like, who in the world are Zechariah and Elizabeth? He lived his whole life as a very poor man. He didn't wear nice clothes. He didn't eat good food. He wore camel hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he didn't live in a mansion or a castle. He lived in the wilderness. Listen to what Jesus says about him later in Luke 7.25. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. If greatness is measured by wealth or riches or luxury or extravagance, uh, that's not John at all. Sure, he had some influence and some following. We're going to get to that in a couple months when we get to chapter 3. But John has no political power. John has no military strength. John has no kingdom, no territory, no subjects under his name. And then his life comes to an abrupt end when he's unceremoniously imprisoned and then beheaded. Like in no sense of the word, as the world might define it, was John great. Before men, in the eyes of men, John was not great. But Zechariah, you need to know your son is going to be great before the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean that he's going to be great before the Lord? We've talked a lot about what it doesn't mean, right? The things that don't characterize or exemplify John. 
But what does it mean? Like, like what is this greatness? Well, the answer is in our text. Uh, Gabriel's going to draw our attention to John's consecration and John's mission. And so it might be helpful for you to keep those two points in your mind as we go through this passage and we think about John's greatness. Right? We're going to look at his consecration and then we're going to look at his mission. So let's start with his consecration. Look again at verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Okay, so what's that all about? Uh, One possibility is that Gabriel here is referring to what's called a Nazarite vow for John. So what's a Nazarite vow? Uh, You can read all the details for yourself uh, this afternoon, Numbers chapter 6. But basically, the idea is that an Israelite could consecrate himself to God, could separate himself for God. Uh, and there were three main rules that you had to abide by. Uh, number one, uh, no great products or wine or alcohol. Number two, no haircuts. Right? No razor shall touch your head. You had to let your hair grow out. And then number three, you couldn't go anywhere near a dead body. Now, for most people, you would take this vow for uh, a short period of time. But here for John, like with Samson before him, he's being set apart from birth. And so if this is referring to a Nazarite vow, this is a lifelong Nazarite vow. But I'm not completely sold that that's what's going on here. Because notice that it doesn't say anything in our text about John being a Nazarite. We're just inferring that from the ban on wine and strong drink. In contrast, Samson's mother was explicitly told by the angel, the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're told no such thing. Also, you would think that if this was a Nazarite vow, that there would be some mention somewhere in the many narratives about John regarding his hair. Like, that seems to be a key point, a key point of focus. Whenever uh, the Bible talks about a person under a Nazarite vow, whether it's Samson's long, famous hair, or even Paul getting a haircut after his vow in Acts, and it makes sense that that's what would be emphasized because it's the most visibly obvious thing about the Nazarite vow. Like, as I look out amongst you, uh, I can't tell uh, which one of you have touched any great products this week. But I can tell which one of you needs a haircut. Right? That is the most visibly obvious thing. So perhaps Gabriel's point here isn't so much that John would be put under a lifelong Nazarite vow, but perhaps his contrast here is simply the influence of alcohol and something else. Right? Look again at verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You see the contrast, right? John is not to be controlled by wine and strong drink. Instead, he is, from the womb, going to be controlled by God the Holy Spirit. And that specific contrast is not unique to this passage because look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter makes the same contrast at Pentecost. Brent's going to cover this passage tonight. Those people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. No, what you're seeing is God pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people. And so the emphasis here seems to be less on a Nazarite vow 
and more on just a general consecration and being set apart for God. Another way we can see this, just the the total devotion of his life to God, the total subjection to God, is in his name. It's not so much the name itself. It's a nice name, John. Uh, It means God is gracious. Uh, But it's more about who named him. You shall call his name John. As in God gave him his name, signifying that he especially belonged to God. Just like God renamed Abram. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And God renamed Isaac. You shall call his name Isaac. God renamed Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but you're going to be called Israel. Typically, the father would have given the baby his name. And so if you look down at verse 59, when he's born, everybody thinks his name is going to be Junior. Zechariah Junior. But no, his name is John, even though none of our relatives is called by that name, because that's the name that God gave him. Might be a Nazarite vow, probably not a Nazarite vow, but either way, right? One thing is very clear. John is being set apart in a very special way. He is no ordinary baby. He's going to be consecrated for special service to God. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God has predestined John for all of this before John was even born. And I think we can go even further than that because remember that at this point, Elizabeth isn't even pregnant yet. That happens in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And so before John is even conceived, God has predestined him to be specially set apart in this way. Now that's not all that different from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Consider also what the apostle Paul had to say about his apostolic ministry. Galatians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so you've got John. You've got Jeremiah. You've got Paul. All of them set apart, consecrated for their respective ministries before they were born, before they were even formed in the womb. But here's the thing. It's not like God only predestines the Johns and the Jeremiahs and the Pauls of the world, like those unique figures in redemptive history, and the rest of us. Well, we get to live apart from his predestination and his sovereignty. No, God declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10, I will accomplish all my purpose. Or consider Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That is true for every single person in this room. Think about that. Every single one of your days has been predestined by God. Everything that will ever happen to you has already been written down, so to speak. And that, of course, includes your salvation. 
Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's sovereign election and man's salvation, that God will choose whom he will choose to save from the beginning of time, and that he predestines his elect for salvation, that's a doctrine that is all over the Bible. Now, this specific statement from Gabriel, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, now that's referring more to his ministry than his salvation. But logically, right, just think about it, his ministry is predicated on his salvation. God's not going to use an unsaved and unregenerate person to be the promised forerunner for his Messiah. The God who predestined John for his specific ministry necessarily predestined him also for his salvation. Every single aspect of John's life, and for that matter, every single aspect of all of our lives, is under God's sovereign control. Point number one, John's consecration. He was set apart for a life of devotion to God, a life of pursuing God's glory, a life of living for God's will, a life of living according to God's word, all by the power of the Holy Spirit who's going to indwell him from day zero. That is greatness in God's eyes. The world has no category for things like this when they consider greatness. So where's the money? Where's the power? Where's the success? Where are the kingdoms? Where are the accomplishments? But Gabriel states it plainly. He will be great before the Lord because his was a life consecrated to God. But that's only part of what makes John great, right? His consecration. Like his consecration does make him great before the Lord. But what makes it so, as Jesus would later say, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Like what is it that uniquely sets John apart, even amongst God's people? Well, that brings us to point number two, his mission what God has called them to do. So we're going to look now at verses 16 and 17, uh, but I want you to have your Bible open in front of you, and I want you to be paying close attention because we're kind of going to go out of order uh, in a way that I think will be more helpful for us to kind of grasp what exactly his mission is. And so first I want you to look at verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, this is something that confused people back then to no end. To understand why, right, let's turn back to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the, the last book in your Old Testament. And so you're flipping backwards. You've got to go to Luke, then Mark, then Matthew, and then you're going to find Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So a lot of Israelites were expecting Elijah to come back. And that's true even today, right? Jews are still hoping that Elijah will return and usher in the Messiah. 
even today, right? Passover seders. Jews will reserve a place at the table for Elijah. They will leave the front door unlocked for Elijah. Seems kind of unnecessary. Probably would find another way in, but that's okay. But what's going on here? Like, what's the deal? Is John the Baptist the second coming of Elijah? Well, there's enough confusion about it that people just asked him straight up, John chapter 1. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, I am not. John is not literally Elijah. But Luke 117, John comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Not in the sense of doing miracles that Elijah did, because John did no miracles. But his ministry, John's ministry, is going to be powerful in terms of calling people to repentance. And isn't that exactly what Elijah did? Just like Elijah power, uh, confronted powerful King Ahab with his sin, well, so John confronts powerful King Herod with his sin. Uh, just like Elijah calls the people of his day to repent, if the Lord is God, worship him, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Well, so John calls the people of his day to repent as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But don't miss the significance of the fact that the angel Gabriel refers to Malachi chapter 4 in announcing the birth of John the Baptist. It's like as if God was picking up right where he left off, right? Malachi chapter 4, the last word he spoke to the Israelites before some 400 years of silence. Now that promised Elijah, that's going to be fulfilled right here. In the birth of John the Baptist. In the one who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so you see how Luke seamlessly connects uh, the last Old Testament promise and the first New Testament fulfillment right here. John is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What's he going to do? Look at verse 17. Go before him. He's going to go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that phrase, go before him, uh, that's not just referring to chronology or like the order in which they would be born. Right? Like Ian will go before Charis. Uh, John will go before Jesus. No, verse 17 tells us going before Jesus means that John is going to go and prepare the people for Jesus. Nowadays, suppose that a famous person, a celebrity, was going somewhere, and they wanted people to know that they were going somewhere. Maybe it's like a book signing or a charity thing or some, some other kind of appearance like that. Well, how are people going to find out? Well, you got the internet, you got social media, you got Twitter, you got all that, right? Back in those days, if a king is going to visit a city, he didn't have all those tools at his disposal. And so what he would do is he would send a forerunner to go before him. Now, these were people who were in charge of uh, getting things ready, uh, making sure that the people knew that the king was coming, making sure that the roads were level and straight so that the king could bring his chariots, removing any obstacles and hindrances, getting the people ready to receive the king. And so John is that forerunner. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. He was to do exactly that. He was to prepare the people's hearts for Jesus. 
Hopefully you still have a, a finger in the book of Malachi. Right? Look over at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist, the one who would go before Jesus to announce and herald and, and introduce and, and point to Jesus so that everybody might be prepared to receive him. And there's only one forerunner to the Messiah. Now, there's only one who would go in this way and prepare the way for Jesus. And so in that sense, we can see how John has a very unique role in redemptive history. That's why Jesus describes him in Luke chapter 7 as more than a prophet. Now, he's in the line of Old Testament prophets that came before him, but he is to be distinguished from every other prophet that came before him because he and he alone is the forerunner to the Messiah. And how is he going to prepare the people's hearts for the Messiah? Well, now we look at verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. We see that same word in, look at verse 17, to turn the hearts. That's what Elijah's ministry is going to be all about. Now that word turn, it's a word that's used throughout the New Testament to symbolize a turning from a life of sin and rebellion towards God. So let me give you just a few examples here. First Peter 2.25, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned, that's the same word, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so you're going in one direction, you're straying, you're choosing a life of rebellion and sin, but now you have turned to God. First Thessalonians 1.9, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You were previously running hard after idols, but now you have turned to serve the one true God. So John's ministry is going to be all about turning people away from their sin and turning them towards God. It's going to be a ministry of repentance. And Gabriel elaborates on that by picking up on yet another prophecy from Malachi. Look at the middle of verse 17. Turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's Malachi 4, 6. That's something that the Elijah to come was prophesied to do. To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. But what exactly does that phrase mean? Some would suggest that this phrase is to be read literally. uh, That there would be literal reconciliation within families as people get saved. As people turn to God. And certainly the gospel does bring horizontal reconciliation within families, right? Anybody who has or who had an unsaved spouse who then turned to God or had an unsaved child who turned to God, you can testify to that. But for every case like that, you can imagine that there's probably even more cases where there's an unsaved family and one person in that family gets saved and that becomes a source of tension and animosity and even persecution within the family. And I'm sure many of you can testify to that as well. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But regardless of that difficulty, right, this, this view is probably the most popular. Uh, and there's literally a million other views. Uh, you read 10 commentaries, you're going to get 11 different views. Right? Some people think that the fathers refers to the Israelites and the children refers to the Gentiles. I think it's a stretch. Uh, some people think that the fathers refers to the patriarchs, right? like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the children is referring to the wayward Israelites, who, you know, the offspring of Abraham, who then turn their hearts to the faith of their fathers. Also think that's a stretch. Uh, others think that the fathers symbolize unbelievers, the, the children symbolize believers. Again, it's possible, but, but I'm not seeing it. I think the best way to think about this is in terms of the original prophecy in the book of Malachi, which is not just the turning of the hearts of the fathers to their children, but also the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so we can see this as describing the totality, the expansiveness, the the inclusiveness of salvation. It's fathers and sons having their hearts turned through repentance. Now, one of the results of that is the horizontal reconciliation that we talked about earlier, not necessarily guaranteeing uh, more peaceful families across the board, because that certainly didn't happen, but illustrating what happens when hearts are truly turned to God. They will necessarily be turned to one another as well. It's kind of like what Lazar preached about last week, right? Where there is love for God, there must necessarily be love for the brethren, Whatever the first phrase means, though, the second phrase, I think we can all agree, is much clearer. To turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Disobedient, rebellious, hard-hearted people will be turned to the wisdom of God. Those who disobediently lived in their own way will now turn to God's way. The word for disobedient uh, is, I think, an interesting one in the Greek. Uh, It's made up of two roots, right? So you've got the the alpha privative, and then you've got the word persuade. And so basically it's not persuade or not persuadable. It's describing the person who cannot be persuaded of righteousness and godliness, who continually, stubbornly rejects the truth. It's that person who is being turned to the wisdom of the just, Those of you who were here a few weeks ago, you may remember Christine's testimony at her baptism. You might remember how she described herself as being hopelessly stubborn before God changed her heart. That's what this is describing. But now here's the million-dollar question. How in the world is John going to do any of this? How is John going to fulfill this mission? Who can change a man's heart? How is he going to turn the disobedient, the stubborn, and the rebellious, and the hard-hearted? How is he going to turn their hearts to God? How can a mere man like John change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone? Well, the answer is, he can't. But remember what he came to do. He came to be the forerunner, to go before. Not to prepare people for himself— but to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Not to be the Savior himself, but to prepare the people to receive the Savior. John's whole life 
John's whole ministry was not about himself. It was about pointing people to Jesus. And so the climactic moment of John's ministry, like the point of the point of the point of John's life, if you had to summarize John's ministry, his mission, his life in one statement, it's what he said in John 129, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a great man. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But at the end of the day, John was just a man. Which means that he was born in sin. That means that he himself sinned. That means that ultimately he could do nothing to save people from their sin. But he could, and he did, point people to someone who could. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as a forerunner, he is pointing everybody to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. Because Jesus and Jesus alone can take away the sin of the world. Because Jesus, if you've been paying attention, uh, to this point in the Gospel of Luke, his name has not yet appeared in a single verse, but at the same time, we see him all over our text, don't we? This Jesus will be born of a virgin just a few months after John. And even while John was living out in the wilderness, doing his thing, Jesus was living a perfect life. Always doing the will of his father. Always doing what pleased his father. Always keeping God's law perfectly and to a T in a way that sinners like me and you and John never could. And this Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he went to the cross to die for sinners. Not for his own sin, because he had none. But sinners like you and sinners like me and sinners like John the Baptist... And there, on the cross, he took upon himself all of the sins of those who would ever believe in him. And he suffered the wrath of God for those sins. And in exchange, right, substitution, he gave them his perfect righteous record. So that they might be fit for heaven. By having their sin taken away, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so today, this morning, if you would repent of your sin and turn to God, if you would place your full trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, you too can be saved. Maybe you've lived your entire life up to this point in what you would admit is just utter rebellion. Maybe you've committed sins so wicked and and you've got a past that's so sordid that that you think that God could never save someone like you. Maybe you think you're just too far gone. You're just too lost. Well, I tell you, my friend, to read and reread and commit to memory Luke chapter 19, verse 10, because that verse is the point of this whole gospel The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Wicked, lost, 
rebellious sinners like you and like me. Sinners Jesus will receive. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. There is no sinner so far gone. There is no sinner too lost that they cannot cry out at this moment and be saved by the mercy and grace of our God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, like John the Baptist, I tell you, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me leave you with just two specific points of application. The first application is to pursue greatness. Now, if you're taking notes, do me a favor. Put greatness in uh, quotes so the person who finds your notes in a couple of months doesn't think I'm like a prosperity preacher or something. Pursue greatness. I think this is a practical application from this text for each and every one of us to think about. Like, like what are the things that make one great? What are the things that marked off John as being great before the Lord? And then think about our own lives. Now, that's not going to be an apples-to-apples comparison. John is a unique figure in redemptive history. Nobody in this room is going to be John the Baptist, and that's okay. But what is it that you pursue over everything else in life? Are the things that you pursue in life more in line with what the world would value as greatness or what God would value as greatness? Like, are you pursuing greatness as the world would define it, Or are you pursuing greatness in the eyes of God? As you do, I remind you of what uh, Jesus would say later in this book, Luke 16, 15. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I think each of of us has to ask uh, maybe some really specific uh, and difficult questions here. Is my pursuit of a promotion at work preventing me from meeting with that brother who needs discipling? And which would be a greater use of my time? Do I prioritize the Lord and his people in my schedule? Or does it just kind of seem to get filled up with things of no eternal value? Is my desire for the approval of those around me stronger than my desire for God's approval. That is, is being exalted among men, is that more enticing and tempting to my heart than being great before the Lord? I've said this before. I think it's worth quoting again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Application point number one is to pursue greatness. A second application point is closely related to the first, but it's even more specifically applied. Uh, parents, uh, expectant parents, potential parents, future parents, grandparents, any kind of parents, you need to do everything you can to raise great kids. 
Because remember the context of this chapter. This is not Gabriel appearing in a vision to John and telling him that, John, you are going to be great. This is Gabriel appearing to John's father, Zechariah, and telling him that his son is going to be great. And that, look at verse 14, is going to be a cause of great joy and gladness. So let me ask, moms and dads, what is it that you want for your child more than anything else? Like what concerning your children will bring you the most joy and gladness? I think all of us who are Christians would say, the number one thing I want for my son or my daughter is for them to love the Lord and for them to serve God. Great. But now we need to ask the harder questions. How does your life, the choices that you make for your family, what your family spends time doing, how does that then reflect that confession? How does what you prioritize for them, the activities and the events that you put on the very top of your family's list, how does that reflect your desire? How about the decisions that you make on their behalf? Schooling, who they spend time with, how you spend your time with them, how does that reflect that belief? If we're going to say that our greatest desire for our children is that they would know and love the Lord, if we're going to say that that would be our greatest joy, that would be the greatest source of gladness, well, friends, our parenting needs to reflect that. Important caveat, remember what we said earlier, salvation is of the Lord. And so whether he saves your children is ultimately God's sovereign choice. But God is often pleased to use faithful and godly parenting to save children. And so the Proverbs tell us, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Moms and dads, future moms and dads, our parenting must reflect our greatest desire for our children to be great before the Lord. Practically, I think that means telling your children that they're not going to be able to participate in that soccer tournament or or that theater performance or that sleepover if it means missing church on a Sunday morning. And I think it means choosing to read the Bible with your kids even when all you really want to do after a long day of work is sit on the couch and watch TV. I think it means that every major decision that we make involving our children, from where you live to where they're going to go to school to what you spend your weekends doing, all your decisions have to be made with that thought, at least in the back of your minds, what does it mean for my son or my daughter to be great in the eyes of the Lord? I was looking through some of the kids' schoolwork the other day. find one of Asher's papers. Uh, You know the space on the top where you're supposed to write your name? Asher wrote that his name was Asher the Great. Now clearly we're going to have to have some conversations about humility, how we ought not to think higher of ourselves than we ought to. But as I was thinking about this passage and I was reflecting on this passage, I could not help but to think, I do want him to be great. I would give anything for him to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Well, if that's true, I need to back that up. I need to back that up with my life, 
I need to back that up with my priorities. I need to back that up with how I parent. By the help of the Holy Spirit, I need to live like I really believe that. Parents, future parents, I hope that you will join me in that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who would go before our Messiah and would tell all who would hear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you that your word tells us what it means to be great in your eyes. Father, we pray that we would be a people that genuinely pursues that, that we would not have our definitions and our conceptions muddied by the things of the world, but that we would look to your word for even the very standards of greatness and that we would pursue that wholeheartedly by the help of your Holy Spirit in both our own lives and even in the lives of our children as we think about that which would bring us the greatest joy and gladness. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Christ receives sinful men. We ask this in his name. Amen.